think I am. This is a People Magazine um, tabloid Sunday message from me. This is the this is the reveal all about Mark Cowper Smith. When we're done when we're done this morning, I expect a lot of people to be canceling me as friends, and uh, I'll need security to leave the room. This is a service for those that are here and for our online community. We're on a series of uh, None Too Far. And the point is that uh, despite what we may think of ourselves and what we may think of others, there's nobody who's too far from God to be reached. And John, you know, when he announced the, the, uh, message, the, ser- the series, I thought, you know, I should really tell my story because I was the premier too far. And uh, John called me up and said, you should tell your story in this series. And I said, well, I already thought of that. You know, it's my idea, not yours. So, <laughs> let's just keep that clear. And Dennis is going to tell his in a couple of weeks, and his is even more hair-raising and horrible than mine. It's going to be, it's going to be top that sin time. I mean, Dennis is a pretty big sinner, but I sinned on the inside, and it's way worse when you sin on the inside. So let me tell you, um, people thought when I when I when I went public that I'd returned to the Lord in the city that I was living in. There was a the Christian community was pretty much interconnected, which is kind of nice. It's not that way now, but the word was that I could never become a Christian, and when it went out that I was a Christian, people didn't believe it. You know, they just flat out didn't believe it. <laughs> I, had, I had one client, I was a lawyer at the time, I had one client come to me and say, well, my wife and I are very concerned. And I said, why? And he said, well, because um, you've become a Christian. And this, these real, really nice Christian couple. And I said, well, what, what's the problem with me becoming a Christian? And he said, well, you're our lawyer. And I said, well, what, what exactly, what, 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 I, I don't get it yet. What exactly is that? And they said, well, we've noticed that you're different now than before. When, when we first started with you, you were really mean and, and nasty. And, uh, and you're a perfect lawyer. And now you're not like that anymore. And we're concerned. Can you still be mean and nasty when you have to be? I said, I can find that inside somewhere for you. And I did. But, um, so it was a shock uh, when I returned to the Lord. No more shocking than it was to me. Uh, I, I hated Christians. I found opportunities to be in conversations with them, to attack them and humiliate them. I, I was very, very aggressive anti-Christian. I hated, absolutely hated the church. So... I'm going to tell you the story of how that all began so that maybe you won't make some of the mistakes they made with me. It started as, uh, the problem started when I was a child. I was raised in a very, very legalistic evangelical church. I found out later, a friend of my father's told me a story. He said, uh, we were talking about the church that, that I grew up in. And um, he said, yeah, there was this really interesting thing that happened one Sunday morning. 
well, what was it? He said, well, it was this old guy in the church, been there forever, just an absolutely wonderful guy. I think of Ron Farnsworth when I think of this story. Guy never, I mean, never criticized anything, never was negative about a word, just, just, just of your basic Christ-like character, much like Ron. Perfect in pretty much every way. <laughs> Actually, he is. He, I'll tell you a story. Uh, since I've got the time to ramble, uh, Ron and I routinely had Monday dinners with uh, uh, an atheist in our, in our little community, and... This guy was rabidly anti-Christian. So there we are eating at his table, playing cards, playing hearts every Monday night. And we'd talk about things, you know. And we'd talk about faith sometimes. I'd argue evolution with him and, and atheism and all this stuff. And Ron would just sit there being absolutely sweet. And the guy said, uh, well, I, if all Christians were like Ron, I'd be a Christian. He's, he's saying that while he's looking at me. Right? This is not good. My, my testimony is somewhat tarnished. Why did I tell you that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so there's this old guy in the church that I grew up in, and he, he hasn't said a word. I mean, he's just sweetness and light. And he stands up in the middle of the... He's been there for years, and he stands up in the middle of the sermon, and he raises his hand, and the pastor stops. And the pastor says, yes. And the guy says, I have a question. And the pastor says, what is it? And he said, I've been coming to this church for 20-some, 30-odd years. He said, all I've ever heard is what not to do. He said, when are you going to tell us something I can do? Amen. I mean, that's smoking. That's like, ouch. So that's the, that's the church I grew up in. And um, the worst of it was I was a very inquisitive child and I asked a lot of questions at Sunday school and they were legit I wasn't I didn't hate Christians at that point I would I just had a lot of questions and they couldn't answer them and it became a nuisance to them so they went to my father and they asked him to not bring me to church anymore wow. now my father really should not have told me that but he did and that kind of got under my skin you know <laughs> And as my teenage years approached, and the situation merely got worse, it seemed to me that to be a Christian, you had to leave your brain at the door of the church. And I found that really offensive. You couldn't ask, you couldn't ask a question that was difficult, and all you ever got when you asked it was pat answers, which you were supposed to swallow and accept as quote-unquote gospel, when there were holes in the things that were being said. There were legitimate questions to ask. So it kind of got worse. And then the teenage years came. The teenage years came. And with it came that spirit of rebellion. So I, I started to act out, as they say. The problem was that I was acting out with all of the pillars of the church community's children. The other teenagers and I, we had this fun thing we did, and I don't recommend it. It can get you arrested. But after church, you got to picture this. You know, church, it's not bad enough that you have to go on Sunday morning, but you have to go Sunday evening as well. And we're talking Bonanza and Walt Disney. 
You know, you're going to miss Bonanza, you're going to miss Walt Disney, you're going to miss absolutely everything. It's funny how many diseases my family, the kids, came down with on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> About four or five o'clock, the cough set in, the problem in the, the lungs, the difficulty walking and breathing. And, and you know, and, and they, I think they knew what we were doing, but we were chiseling. We were carving out a time for Walt Disney and Bonanza not to have to go to church. But most of the time we had to go to church. And in our family, you respected, I respected my father and his will. So he said, you know, if you're going to live here, you're going to go to church on Sunday nights. So picture, you're wearing suits, okay? You're a teenager, and you've got to wear a suit. And you've got to wear a suit Sunday morning to somehow honor God, but you also have to wear a suit Sunday night. So there we are in our suits, and now the service is over, and uh, we take off our plastic clip-on ties, <laughs> flash out the collars. You know, we look stupid, we're in our suits, but we go to the corner store. It had these little corner stores, little grocery stores, you know, one-room grocery store, and we buy these flats of eggs, about this big by this big, and about four or five deep, right? And we're talking 40, 50, 60 eggs. And we'd take them out, and we'd throw them at cars. It was more fun than you've ever had. Any, no, it was a terrible thing to do. We never enjoyed any of it. <laughs> so, so this is our Sunday night adventures. And I'm doing this with the, 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 the children of the pillars of the church, right? And it wasn't my idea. Well, I mean, I, I acquiesced. They forced me to do it, so I found it in my heart to throw some eggs at cars. Yes, I enjoyed it, but that was wrong, okay? But I'm doing this with the Pillars kids, and on Sundays, the Pillars kids are perfect. But as soon as Sunday night's over, we're all doing the same thing together. And we do it all together the rest of the week, too. So what I'm dealing with is hypocrisy. There's these people pretending they're Christians, but they're not. At least they're not living like it. And the one thing I can't abide and I think I got it from my father, is hypocrisy. If you're going to do something, do it. Be honest about it. Don't hide it. So I'm the one not hiding my rebellion, and they're all the ones hiding their rebellion. And, and their parents come to my parents and say, we don't want our kids hanging around with Mark anymore. So now it's just a revisit of the Sunday school, don't bring your kid to Sunday school thing. So by this time, I've got a real hatred for the church. I mean, an abiding, passionate, well-cared-for, well-nurtured, well-fed hatred. And that goes on into adulthood. So much so that I just looked for any opportunity I could to have a conversation with a Christian to abuse them. I was mean. I mean, really, really mean. So university comes, carry on my hatred of Christians, found more opportunities to get into trouble, alcohol, drugs, the whole, the whole nine yards. My gods were music and drinking and drugs and chasing girls. Those, those were my gods in those years. On the summers between university, I, <laughs> I had this best friend from high school. His name was Mark. They called us Mark and Remark. He was flat out the coolest guy. He had perfect hair, which in the 60s really meant something. And he looked like every picture of Jesus that you've ever seen. He no, I'm serious. Like the women loved him. They absolutely thought maybe he was Jesus. Really fun, great sense of humor. We hung out. We did everything together. We were best friends. 
And he'd moved out to the coast. He was living on an island out there, uh, just off the west coast of Canada. And for summers, I'd go and, and live with them, and we did construction together and played. He was a guitar player. I was a guitar player. So we did music at night, 16 hours a day of construction, then some music, then back to bed and do it again. But every couple of weekends, we'd take the ferry over to Vancouver, back to the mainland, and go see some concerts, see rock concerts. And there was some blues clubs we hung out at. And it was, the music was really, really good. And every time we went, we stayed with my father. And my father had moved to the coast to plant a church with the guy. And my dad had really gotten excited about doing church in a new way. You know, they were, they were breaking some ground in how they did church. And he was out there doing this church. And every time we'd come over for the weekend, we were there to party. We were there to go to the clubs and the rock concerts and stuff. He would try to finagle us into church. You know, you really need to come to church with me. <laughs> no, we don't. I can't think of anything more painful than going to church with you. No, no, you really need to come to church. And I got feeling guilty, like we're eating his food and, and everything else, and we're staying at his house, and he wants us to go to church, so okay, okay. And he's got this, church, this radical church, okay? It's really radical. You're going to like it. <laughs> oh, please. You must be joking. So Mark and I decide to go to church with them. And we'd been partying the night before, so we weren't in the best of conditions. And at this point... We looked like rock and roll lumberjacks. It's just it's it's a new kind of it's a new kind of music. That's, I'm sure it's going to come out rock and roll lumberjack music. You know the ratty jeans and the the plaid shirts and beards down to here and, and long hair and everything. We didn't we did not look like West Vancouver. Let's just put it that way. So off we go to go to church with my dad to this radical church that we're just going to love. We can't wait to be there. This is going to be so good. So we go to this church, and it's West Vancouver, which is upper crust. And everybody at that church is perfect. They're all painfully perfect. They get the white shoes. They get the white belts. They've got the fancy cars. Their kids' teeth are perfect. The wives work out at the country club. They're perfect, too. And there we are. ZZ, it really, really. It's, it's ZZ Top meets Neil Young meets Desperation. I don't know. So there, we, so there we are. And see, I've been to church. I grew up in church. I know what to expect. My friend Mark, he's never been to church in his life. He doesn't have a clue. To him, it's just an otherworldly adventure. This is interesting. These people are strange. <laughs> That's what we're thinking about them. You know, what are they thinking about us? So we sit through church, and it's... Uh, see, we're musicians. We, we worship music. And the music stunk. The music was really painful to endure. Painful to endure. So we're kind of patiently looking at our watches, like, we've got to get out of here. This is painful. And then there's a mediocre message. It's okay, but I mean, it's nothing special. And then we go out for fellowship time, schmoozing, the schmooze fest, where all the perfect people will be perfect together and perfectly wonderful, and isn't it great to be us? So they're schmoozing out in the, just outside the 
It's like it's really cool church. It's got this great outdoor kind of patio thing. Uh, it's covered and it's really nice. So we're out there in the patio and standing around looking at people and they're kind of looking at us, <laughs> wishing we were dead. And I'm thinking, man, we've we got to get out of here. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I, I thought I was embarrassing my father. My father was one of those guys that whatever he spilt on his shirt the day before at lunch, he wears the next day. Like he cannot, his wardrobe was embarrassing and painful. He just, wanted, he just didn't care about anything. So what is, he doesn't care what we look like. And it hasn't dawned on him that this is a socially awkward moment that maybe he should put us in the car and take us back to the, the place he found us in. But he's not going to do that. You know, he's oblivious to the looks. We're, we're getting the stink eye from absolutely everybody. Really. So, yeah, it was. It was awful. And then the pastor comes over. And he starts chatting with us. Oh, that's nice. Making small talk. And then my friend Mark pulls out a cigarette. Pulls out a cigarette, lights it up, starts smoking. And I'm like, this is going to be good. This, I see, he, Mark has no, he has no clue what he's just done. He's just taken the red flag and waved it at all the bulls in there. Come and get me. I'm offending you. And he's just like smoking away. And I'm chuckling to myself like, oh man, what the, what's the pastor going to do? These people are going to freak out. Mark doesn't know that there's sin and sin and then there's smoking. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's, there's killing and murder and theft and vandalism and stuff, but then there's smoking. So he doesn't understand what he's just stepped in. That he's pulled the pin out of the grenade and just kind of, just kind of lightly dropped it in front of all these perfect people. And the smoke is starting to waft through the area and more and more stink eyes are looking at us and people are crossing themselves and casting us out. I mean, a bit uh, carried away here, but it was definitely the stink eye. So I'm wondering, what's going to happen? How's this going to go? And the pastor says, uh, can I have one of those? Can I have one of those? So Mark is like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I got a couple left here. Pastor takes it, lights it up, and starts smoking with us. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Am I on LSD again? <laughs> is this actually happening, or is this an out-of-body weird experience? And he smokes a cigarette and chats with us. And I got to tell you, I was undone. Yeah. It's like... I know what he just did. He just risked his reputation. He just risked everything with, with these people to make us feel welcome. Hallelujah. So that's the first that's the first that type Christian I had ever met in that moment. It's like, this guy's different. This guy is really different. So my father calls me up a couple weeks later, says, Why don't you come over for the weekend and we'll go fishing? Okay, yeah, Pastor Ken's coming. All right, let's do it. So we go fishing, which led to fishing, which led to fishing, which led to fishing and fishing for about 10 years. And on those fishing trips, I asked him every miserable, hard, confrontational question I could think of 
for a Christian. And frankly, he is one of the smartest people I've ever known. And um, he became my mentor. It was wonderful. And I asked him all these hard questions, and, and he just did his best. And you know, he never dodged a question. And when he didn't know, he said, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. I'll think about that. We'll talk about it the next time we go fishing. So here's the interesting thing. This went on for years because then I moved back to Calgary and I'd come out for Christmas and I'd come out in the summer to go fishing. And It was always with my dad and with Ken. He never in that entire time never tried to lead me to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He just listened to me and he took seriously every question that I had. And he showed an interest in my life, which was really pretty cool. So that went on like that. Now I'm working as a lawyer in Calgary. And a philosopher once said, there's two great tragedies in a person's life. The first tragedy is not fulfilling your dreams. And the second tragedy is fulfilling your dreams. Isn't that interesting? Because if you fulfill your dreams and they're the wrong dream, you're in trouble. And by the age of 28, uh, I had argued in the Supreme Court of Canada. <laughs> Guys, that's like... That's amazing. 28 years old, argues in the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, this thing's driving me crazy. So anyway... No. No, I did not win. You, we were arguing for leave to appeal. With the, with the Supreme Court of Canada, they only take constitutional questions, questions of unsettled law or of national interest. So I had to convince them that my little case was, um, an, uh, uh, was worthy and was an unanswered legal question. I had them going to their law library for an hour and a half, getting their aides to bring cases to talk about it. I was so happy. And one of them, there was a three-judge three board, one of them wanted to go with, with my position, and, and the chief justice said no. So, look, it was just wonderful to do. You know, I didn't, winning or losing is not the point. But my point was that by that time, I had achieved so much. I was making really good money. I had a beautiful apartment overlooking the city. I had a really cool car homecoming queen as a girlfriend, tons of friends, successful career, and I was utterly and completely empty inside. And I found myself waking up in the morning thinking, why am I going to go to work today? And I work 12 to 14 hour days every day of the week, Saturdays too, and often. Um, why am I going to work today? And I honestly couldn't come up with a good reason. I just couldn't. And I'd come home at night, and I'd go to bed, and I'd think, why did I do what I did today? And I couldn't come up with a reason. There was utterly no sense of purpose. The money and everything else didn't matter. It wasn't important. There was no sense of fulfillment. 
And it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And I was waiting. Um, I was waiting uh, for my girlfriend to get ready, and I was at her apartment. And our apartments were in the same building. So I was waiting for her to get ready, and someone had given her a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, um, The Great Divorce. You should, if you haven't read C.S. Lewis, you haven't lived. Um, so I was reading The Great Divorce, and he had this really interesting premise on the definition of hell. His definition of hell was this. You get to be you, becoming more you forever. And that doesn't sound so bad. Isn't that what we all want? You get to be you as you are now, only more so as you are now, forever. And as I was reading this, you guys, I mean, I was so far from God, you couldn't imagine. I read that, and I'd been thinking in my mind, if, if life goes on like this much longer, with a sense of this purposelessness, I'm not sure I want to keep living. I was not depressed. There was, no, there was no depression. I was still having all sorts of fun and stuff, but it meant nothing. And this thought was beginning to play. If it goes on like this much longer, I can get a 38 and I can blow my brains out and be done with it all. Not really, no. But as I'm reading The Great Divorce, you, you, can't, you can't understand what was happening here. It was a spiritual thing. And I'm not into God, so what's about to happen to me, I didn't recognize as God. I just recognized it as an experience that was overwhelming. I'm sitting there having this thought in my mind like I could always kill myself if it stays like this. And I'm reading The Great Divorce, and he gets to the part where he posits this hell of being who you are right now for the rest of eternity. And he says, so... What if you choose to kill yourself and a moment later you wake up and you're still you and you can't die and you're who you are now forever? And the terror, it was a spiritual experience I didn't understand at the time. The fear of being me the way I was, going on like that forever with no way out of who I am right now. And it's only going to get worse. This fear came up, and it was like being choked. I was terrified. It was a spiritual thing I didn't realize at the time. I was absolutely terrified. And I thought, what if I... See, I fundamentally, guys, I did not like myself. I was not good company. I saw to it that I had something to do every single night of the week and people to party with and have fun with and hang out with and drink with or go to movies or play music or whatever. It didn't matter. But every single night of the week, I had something on because I fundamentally did not like to be alone because I did not like who I was. And now, hell would be being me forever. And that scared the hell out of me. And I thought, i got to do something. i got to do something. And I remembered my grandmother, who is the most godly person I've ever known. Grandmothers, don't stop praying. Please don't stop praying. She took me aside when I was 16, going into the worst of the whole hippie thing. And she said, you know, 
She had a prophecy about me when I was born. That I would wander a long time in the desert, but that I would come back to God and do great things for him. And she told me that. I said, yeah, 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 whatever. I know. Yeah, yeah, Granny, you got some great prophecies. Hang on to those. And uh, she said, you know, I pray for you every day. I said, I know that's the worst of it. You're making my life miserable. Leave me alone. She said, I pray for you every day. But she said this. She said, if your life is ever going to have purpose, you have to come to terms with God. And then in the worst of this situation, I remembered what you said. If your life is ever going to have to have, have purpose, you're going to have to come to terms with God. So I thought, i got to do something about this. But I hate Christians. And I hate the church. So how am I going to figure this God thing out? And it was a quandary. But I know I can't go back to church. First of all, I wouldn't go to a church that would have me as a member. No, it's the truth. I mean, I know me. I know me really well. I know the darkness on the inside and the outside. And if I were a Christian, I would never have me in my church. That would be a mistake. So I was certain. I'm too far. I mean, I'm, I, you know, this isn't, isn't going to work. But I've got to find a way to investigate God. But I hate Christians and I hate the church. So this is a quandary. This is a problem. So my then-girlfriend had a sister, and her sister has started going to this discussion group, this Christian discussion group. And they meet on Wednesday nights. And they're not part of a church. Clink, uh, click, number one. They're not part of a church. This is good news. This is, this is great. But they're Christians. Not so great. But how am I going to find out about Jesus if I don't talk to Christians? You know, It's bad. So I decide, okay, I, I have integrity. I hate the church, but it's not a church. And I hate Christians, but I'm going to give them a try. I'll I'll give them a break. I'll throw them a bone. I'll spend some time with them, the lucky people. So I go to this group, and they're really nice, really, really nice people. And I'm not. And I come in with anger and resentment and hatred and just a boatload of arrogance, just phenomenal arrogance. So I'm at the study, and I decide, well, my life's philosophy was make the worst first impression you can. Whoever likes you after that is a real friend. Everybody else, you know, who cares? Don't care about those people anyway. So I'm into making the worst first impression and letting it last. So I decide, let's find out, you know, where their line is. So I'm going to smoke through the whole thing. Because I know smoking is one of those cursed things, like they can't stand that. So I'm going to smoke through the whole study. And then I'm going to take a bottle of Grand Marnier with me. So I've got some liqueur on hand pretty much all the time. And I'm just going to keep taking sips of that, and I'm going to keep on smoking. Oh, and by the way, my language hasn't improved at this point. The F word is there in every sentence. I'm not exaggerating. Pretty much every sentence. So there I am at the study with these sweet people, smoking, drinking, and effing. And, and they're, you know, they're not listening to me. They're, oh, they're taking the abuse, but they're not, 
they don't know that I'm right and they're wrong. It hasn't dawned on them yet that I know the Bible better than they do. And it's really offensive to me. It was. I was offended. Like, they're not paying attention to me. I, I mean, stupid. Like, I'm smoking and I'm drinking and I'm blowing smoke in their face and I'm effing this and effing that and they're not listening to me? They, can't, they don't have a choice. They have to listen to me. I'm making sure of it. But they're not listening to me because I'm right and they're wrong. They don't see what I'm saying. They should be paying attention, these people. So I get really frustrated and it just makes me meaner. And nastier. Because I'm outrageously offended. Because I know more than they do. And they don't see that. So I'm thinking, these people are not respecting me. What am I going to do about that? And this thought, this little thought, in my head, which I did not recognize, says, well... If they thought you loved them, they would listen to you. Oh, this is good. There's a way to make them think I love them. And they'll listen to me. So I thought, how can I, how can I make them think that I love them? And the thought said, well, if you didn't blow smoke in their face... Number one. Number two, and you didn't drink all the time. Number three, and you didn't swear at them. Number four, and if you didn't dominate every single conversation. Number five, if you only, if you stayed quiet for a while and listened to them. Number six. Number seven, if you just added something at the end of the conversation that might be of value to them, they would think that you loved them. Ah, this will work. This is what I'm going to... It's so corrupt. I mean, it's just... I'm going to manipulate these people into thinking that I love them so they'll give me the respect I deserve. Okay? So I set out to do it. Do you know how hard it is to be that kind of person and not that kind of person? Like two hours of self-control? So every Wednesday night was hell for me. Self-control hell. But I did it. I mean, I really did it. Because it's worth tricking them into thinking that I love them so that they'll give me the applause that I really deserve. It's worth it. This went on for at least six months. Maybe a year. I'm I'm trying to remember. It was more than six months of tricking them into thinking that I love them. Now, I know, well, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. It's my life's motto. I live by that. If it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. And perseverance, I I could, I don't know, it's a dog, an ADD thing or something. I don't know, the dog with a bone, you know. So for this whole time, I did that. Did it, did it, did it, did it, and did it. And one day, I can still remember the moment. My hands are on the wheel of the car. I'm driving up to the house. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking about the people, what's going to happen tonight. And all of a sudden, this revelation, this absurd revelation, I love these people. 
I love these people. I love these people. I mean, it was like, I love these people. I ran into the house, literally ran into the house. I burst into the living room, and they're sitting there. I said, you guys, the most amazing thing, the most amazing thing just happened. They said, what? Like a car accident? Like what? I said, no. I said, I just realized I love you. And they looked at me, and they said, well, we love you too. I was in heaven. Now, here's what I found out then, or a little later. When I started going to that group, there was two guys that started it, two couples. Both of their wives, within the first couple of weeks of me being there, went to their husbands and said, if he keeps coming, we're not coming anymore because he's a pig. And their husbands stood up and said, no, you're coming because Jesus loves him. And we are going to love him too. And I found out later. And Shelly, when she, my wife Shelly, when she heard that I was doing this today, she said, you have to, uh, this is an aside, this is her, not me, okay? She said, when you come to this point and you talk about those two women and how their husbands stood up to them and said, no, this is what you're going to do. He said, you tell the church that and you tell the women in that room that they have to listen to their husbands on times like that and that it's really important that women don't always get their own way based on emotions. That's not what I just said. That's what she asked me to say to you. You got a problem with what I just said? You know her phone number. You know where she can be found. You chew her out. You don't chew me out. But she said, you tell the women, get in their face and tell them. On questions like that, these sorts of things, you listen to your husband and you do what he says because Shelley said women tend to make emotional decisions in the heat of the moment rather than thinking it through. This is going out to the kids' ministry and all you people online, just keep sending your tithes. Everything's going to be okay. So... uh, so, so this group, this little, this, this group, this group turned into the most vital discussion group you can possibly imagine because we set ground rules. And here's our ground rules. And it's really important to understand this because of my past, the way we were going to do this group, there's a certain way we're going to do this group. There's no such thing as a, as a dumb question. If, it, if, if anyone has a question, it's a good question, and we're going to deal with it. And there's no such thing as pat answers. We will not have pat answers in this group, and we will not have questions that aren't okay to ask. And we will lovingly fight over every issue and debate it. But we're going to love each other while we do it. Guys, something happened. I mean, still, I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit yet at this point. I just think, you know, he's a bird. There's the father, the son, and the bird. That's about it. That's it. And the bird's a little strange, and he's not house-trained, so it's probably best keeping him at a distance in a cage somewhere else. So I didn't get I didn't get the Holy Spirit. I didn't understand how he did stuff. People came to that group. I, we, no one knew who they were. People would show up and say, I heard there's a group here where you can talk about God. 
can I come? Everybody. One night, a call girl came. And I answered the door. And she is, this is back in the day with those big, tall, you know, the first cell phones are like bricks. She shows up with this and she says, is this the house where we can talk about God? I said, yeah. She said, I don't know how long I can stay. I might get a phone call from a client and have to go. But am I welcome? I said, absolutely. We had, and man, we had some of the best arguments, some of the best debates you've ever seen. And that little group became 60, 70 people. We had to move to a, one of the people in the group had a, a sort of a mansion, big house, and we'd meet there all together for worship in this massive living room and then break up into all these different parts of the house for small group discussions. We planted our church out of that group. And I ended up becoming their pastor, one of their pastors. <laughs> I got saved out of that group, I think. Now, this is this thing, right? We always say that salvation is a moment, but it's also a process. And for me, it was much more a process than it was a moment. It was a dawning that I had to know God. If my life was going to have purpose, I had to know God. I had to come to peace with him. That was essential. And that, uh, those people and the way they loved me, really, it, was, it wasn't, I was a Christian. I was just an utterly broken one. Utterly broken. So it was a restoration. And it was a gradual process. But by the time that first year in that group was over, I was sold out. I was sold out. This is what, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I knew I would become a pastor. I just didn't know when. It took another eight years, something like that. Ended up quitting the law and going into the pastorate. So it was a process. So here's the two seminal moments that I want us to take away because it, it matters to us, matters to this church, matters to our future. The first one was the cigarette. The way home started with the cigarette in that Sunday in Vancouver when he loved us and welcomed us. That was the beginning. And the second moment was when those two guys told their wives, you're hanging in because God loves him. We're going to love them too. Those two moments were the way home for me. And uh, we have a chance to be those kind, that kind of Christian. We have the chance to be a place that welcomes everybody no matter what. As that book we're reading says, there's no perfect people. We don't want perfect people at this church. Perfect. Jesus said, I didn't come for perfect people. I came for people that know their need. I came for broken people, and whether you recognize it in yourself or not, you're a broken person. You're not done yet. You're not whole yet. You have things that need to be healed. And this is a place for healing. If we can love one another, and we can love new people, and we can love people as they are, then Jesus gets a chance to change them. But if we prejudge and we react that way and we don't welcome, a lot of people aren't going to make it who otherwise would make it. So let's commit, okay? Let's commit in our hearts and our minds 
that we're going to be that kind of church. That we're going to love people that way and accept them. And let's open our families and our hearts and our homes and our small groups. Let's be that kind of Christian. What you thinking? You're thinking something. Uh, first of all, can we thank Mark? Just, just go ahead and stay up here, Mark. Um, we, we have 10 minutes left on the clock. And uh, I want to say he mentioned a book that we're reading. It's a book called No Perfect People Allowed by a pastor in Austin, Texas, who was raised evangelical. And he uh, realized that the way that we are doing church isn't going to work in this, next, in this new generation, our new world. And uh, so the word Mark just used is called pro- process is critical. He has atheists and uh, lesbians, homosexuals, drug addicts, um, uh, people that hate Christians going to his church because of the way that they communicate the gospel like Mark just did. They feel comfortable there because they're allowed to be in process and, and not ostracized. So like when they're in your small group or in the lobby, it said it took, it took them a while to get his church to be this way. If somebody's in the small group and says, well, I believe in abortion and I believe in this and I believe in that and I don't believe that and I don't believe in heaven and hell, you know, am I still welcome here? Rather than answering their question and, 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 and saying, well, no, actually, that's wrong, um, you just say, well, we don't believe that, but you're welcome here. And so loving the person where they're at, like Jesus did with you and I, is critical. And so this book is called No Perfect People Allowed, How to, how to Create a Come-as-You-Are Culture in the Church. And so I'm going to order extra copies. I'll have them out at the back over the next couple of weeks while we're in this series because our hearts have to change. And uh, I, my heart's changing. I, I, by reading this book, he has, by the way, he has brilliant answers to the hardest questions people are asking right now. And testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of actual people in his church about how they became Christians because it was a come-as-you-are kind of a church. And it's really informing me on how to better communicate the gospel to everyone because no one is too far from God. And so I wanted to open up for Q&A for the last 10 minutes. Yeah, um, we got 10 minutes, and Q&A is always really fun. <laughs> or com- comments. Comments or Q&A, questions, concerns. You can also write your comments uh, online and questions online for the online community. Uh, the online community, uh, you can write your questions online, and we'll respond to those uh, later. Oh, this is so cool. How did my father uh, respond to my coming back to the Lord? Um, My father's a unique story. He grew up in um, the early days of the Pentecostal movement. And he saw the tail end of the movement where it became more acting out than it was really real. And he became the black sheep of his Pentecostal family. And... uh, my mentor, the guy who went Cam Blue and fishing with, the smoke the cigarette, um, he went to do his, his uh, doctorate at Fuller Seminary. My father paid for it, financed his entire doctorate. And um, they were very close friends. And then he at Fuller came into the Holy Spirit through John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement. So there's, there's the only guy in the world my father respects and the only guy in the world I respect. Uh, Died-in-the-wool intellectual. 
And he's calling us from Fuller Seminary, telling us about healings in the classroom, physical healings in a seminary classroom. And I'm thinking, this cannot be happening. This is the book of Acts, but this is like not the... We don't live there anymore. Those days are history. They, they're not real. And Ken said, you've got to come down and see this. So I went down, <laughs> rocked my world. That's, that was the Holy Spirit experience. And then my father, and my father was cynical, um, hard-edged, cross-examining kind of a lawyer. And he went down to a conference with Ken in Anaheim and uh, got touched by the Holy Spirit so powerfully in his 50s and when he came home I heard about some of his stories and I called my sister who's really an amazing person I said Janet is it real what happened to dad is it the real thing what's going on he had grown up with an anger towards his past that he had all his life and you could see it it was in him all the time and um I said, is it real? And Janet said, when you look into his eyes, you see the eyes of a child. So he was so rocked, so utterly rocked by that experience that when I returned, it was, it was the prodigal son and let's kill a cow and have a party. He was, he was my biggest fan and my biggest supporter through everything that we did. So he was thrilled with the return. And my grandmother, my grandmother, who prayed for me every day, prophesied all these things. When I first came back to the Lord, I called my dad and I said, you've got to tell Granny what happened to me. Because I know she prays for me all the time. I said, you've got to tell her I've returned to the Lord. He said... Uh, Oh, I didn't tell you. She was 94. She slipped and broke her hip. She said, he said, she's in the hospital. She broke her hip. They think she's going to die sometime in the next two days. I said, please go to her as soon as you can before she dies. Tell her that I've returned to the Lord. So he went the next day. She couldn't talk, but she held his hand. And when he told her the story of my return, she squeezed his hand and shook it smiled and she died later that day so she lived she lived to see that last prayer answered oh <laughs> whatever happened to remark yeah remark I was mark he was remark actually we took turns being remark uh, he moved to the States because they were from Colorado. Um, and I never heard from him again. Don't know. But, but his younger brother, Mitch, I became friends with. And Mitch and Joan, they were both geologists. He started coming to our church and he became a Christian. His younger brother became a Christian. Yeah, it was the coolest thing. Yeah. One more? Okay. Transition from lawyer to pastor? When you 
When God impacts your life like that, there's a hunger to serve him. And then the question only becomes, how best? Um, I was a lawyer, a Christian lawyer, and I think helped and blessed a lot of people, but nowhere near as many as being a pastor. And guys, honestly, to be a Christian is to be other-centered. Let's try to get that in our heads. To be a Christian is to be other-centered. So when we look at a decision, for instance, I told Chris and Rachel when they're going to Florida, when you go looking for a church, don't look for a church that meets your needs. Don't look for the perfect place to raise your kids. Ask the question, where can I make the most difference? Go to the place where you can make the biggest contribution. Let's be other-centered about this as much as we possibly can. So the transition was, where can I make the biggest difference? And it's not going to be in my law office. It's going to be working with people. And still is. Yeah, working with people. Make a difference. All right, let's all stand. And as Josh uh, closes us out, wouldn't this, a, wouldn't this a great day, you guys? Isn't it? Great day. We're getting saturated in the heart of Jesus. That's what, that's what we're doing at the beginning of this year. We're allowing God to saturate our hearts with his attitude toward people, his heart toward people. We're, most of us are Christians. We're in the boat. If we died today, we know we're going to heaven. There's a whole lot of people around us. That's not the case. And we must care about them because we are not going to be a selfish church. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Tell, look at the person next to you and say, we're not going to be a selfish church. All right. I'm going to call the prayer teams up here. And uh, if you have sickness in your body, we want to pray for you. We're going to believe God for a miracle with you. If you need prayer for anything, come up. Maybe there's someone, a child or a spouse or someone that has not yet come to God. They're far from God. And you want somebody to pray with you over them, come up front. Uh, We've been hearing some great testimonies already. So uh, prayer teams, come on up. Get ready to pray for people. Let's worship. As we begin to worship, you can move up front here and have prayer. Or you can go out back in the uh, hallway and have fellowship. But God bless you, and we'll see you next Sunday. I